Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Mark Kramer. I am uh, the host of the Best Business Minds and welcome to another edition. Uh, for those of you who don't know me and haven't signed on before, I do uh, family business and entrepreneurial consulting. Before we get started, let me introduce you to two, our two sponsors, Matt Butler. Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everyone. I spent 25 years in leadership roles in Fortune 500 companies and found the same three issues at the root of every problem. That is a lack of understanding about how things really work, a lack of collaboration, and limited investment dollars that lead to shortcuts and workarounds. So we created our solution to eliminate those three problems. We do that by working with your team to create a visual image of your process like you've never seen before. That gets everyone on the same page and once that happens, you can start to see how your processes are actually causing your problems. Once that becomes clear, your solutions and maybe more importantly, your priorities become obvious. So if you'd like to fix your business problems, reduce some stress in your organization, increase your profitability, give us a call. Thank you. Matt, thank you so much. John Custer. Thank you, Mark. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm John Custer III, a partner at the business law firm of Custer & Custer. We provide startups to middle market companies with services including incorporations, shareholder and buy-sell agreements, trust and estates, and intellectual property. We have substantial experience working with companies from a variety of industries like manufacturing, professional services, software, and various other technology products and services. There's no charge to call us and discuss your issue, and depending on your needs, we can give you a flat price for the work. Again, I'm John Custer III with Custer & Custer. John, thank you. Matt, thanks again for uh, sponsoring the show. And Jacqueline, we're so excited to have you here this morning. I loved your book. Uh, I think you need to send it to the White House, but unfortunately that guy doesn't read. Uh, so that, could, that would be a, definitely a problem. But he could really benefit by this book. Thank you, Mark. I'll, 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 I'll reserve my comments on that one so I don't get myself in trouble. Of course, of course. So uh, Jacqueline, you are a partner at international, uh, an, an international partner and North American director for the Potential Project. So tell us a little bit about that before we talk about the book. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, thank you so much, Mark. And thank you to, uh, to all of you for joining. It's wonderful to see so many of you interested in, in the topic of leadership and interested, hopefully, for yourselves, but also in terms of for all of us as leaders for how we can realize more of our leadership potential. So Potential Project is a global organization. We're in 28 countries. And our passion is really looking at how leaders and actually all individuals can better understand and manage their mind. And this is to be able to enable us to be able to realize more of our potential as leaders or to just enhance our performance, enhance our creativity, enhance our ability to be more resilient, which I know in today's times is important for all of us. And so we partner with neuroscientists. I'll talk a lot, of, hopefully, if you're interested about the science behind the mind, but also the practical applications to be able to make sure in day-to-day -day work activities, we can be the most effective we can be. Super, that sounds like a great organization and great mission. Every day when you wake up, you must be very excited about what you're doing. I am very much, and we're very privileged. We work with many of Fortune 500 companies, so organizations like IKEA and Lego and uh, Microsoft and many more, and we feel very privileged to be able to support many of these leaders and many of these organizations realize more of their business objectives. So I, I love the book because I like book with lots of statistics and a lot of research that's done. And yeah. I end up pulling up a lot of good research that came out of this. So let's start with why did you write the book and how did you come up with the title? Yeah, so we have been in operation for over a decade. And what we found was over the last four to five years, when we look at the leaders that we partner with in many of the organizations that I mentioned and many more, is that we really started to see that the, the game of leadership has changed fundamentally in terms of we saw many more people experiencing stress. We saw a lot of leaders feeling overwhelmed. Um, and this was really at all levels of leaders, but particularly we were very interested in terms of the C-suite level of leadership, what they were finding in terms of for themselves, the challenges that they were facing. And so because part of our work is very much to be able to support leaders realize their potential, we wanted to dive into that. So we partnered with Harvard Business Review Press uh, with, in partnership with them, we were able to interview over 250 C-suite executives. We assessed over 35,000 leaders in 72 countries. 
and really trying to get behind what is challenging about leadership today and what are the core qualities that are going to be critical for us to be able to be more effective as leaders. And specifically, the, the thing that we found, and this really speaks to, I think, Mark, your first question or your follow-on question around why we came up with the title of the book, is what we found is that the inner game of leadership, many of us as leaders have a lot of support in terms of the outer game of leadership, how to be strategic, how to manage the books, how to do a great marketing plan. But what we found and what we heard from so many of the C-suite leaders is there wasn't enough focused on the inner game of leadership, which is really about managing your mind to be able to be the best leader that you can be. And so that's really what it came down to in terms of the mind of the leader, how to be able to enhance your own performance, but also how to be able to focus on your team and your organization from a mind perspective to be able to achieve business outcomes. So before I get into the questions of the book, I'm just wondering about this. You've got these leaders, clients all over the world, and they've had two incredibly catastrophic events happen in the fir you know, first into the leading into the second quarter of the year. What have they been asking? What kind of advice have they been asking for? And what have you been telling them in terms of how to handle this? Uh, both internally for them, because they've got to be super stressed out. I mean, you, could you imagine being the CEO of Macy's and you have to close up all your stores and there's no income coming in? Or Michael Kors, I talked to a senior person at Michael Kors and said, we got no income uh, coming in. So what are you, what's, what's the advice you're giving them and what are you hearing from them? Yeah, thank you for asking, Mark. And, and I really see there's, there's two major things that we've been seeing and working with uh, leaders around the globe. And the first one is how to deal with the mental health challenges that I think so many people are facing. So, and although some organizations are now and some countries are opening up, but still people feeling that sense of isolation or uncertainty. We as human beings do not like uncertainty. So even if you say, I have no issue with change, most of us do not like uncertainty. And so a lot of these things have been challenging for us. And for most leaders, it's the first priority to how to help people be more resilient. And so one of the things that we've been doing in partnership with many of the organizations that we work with is just, you know, training people on how to manage the mind to be able to deal with uncertainty, to deal with the isolation, to deal with all these challenges that they're facing. Because at the end of the day, you know, even if you have to do major layoffs, you still need people that are going to be able to respond to your customers and to be able to support your business operations. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and this has been really quite interesting, is that we're finding with many of the organizations that we work with, this is actually an amazing time for major change. Um, I saw a joke about, um, you know, who led your digital strategy in 2020? Was it the CEO? Was it the CTO? Or was it COVID-19? And I think for many organizations, they're seeing this as a major opportunity when things are in transit. It's a lot easier for us as leaders to be able to make some of the major changes that we've often wanted to make. So being digital is now, you, everybody has to be digital to some extent. And that has been an opportunity that for many organizations they've seen to be able to move things. But not only that, making changes in the organization that they've always wanted to make, but they were too stuck to be able to do. And to do that, again, from a mind perspective, it's also to be able to help people to let go of what was, to be able to look forward to what we all know, the new normal, which is not the same as what it was before. Uh, you brought up mental health, and that is going to be a big problem because a lot of people I know, I, I love working from home, have been doing it for most of my professional life, so that doesn't bother me. But for a lot of people, not going into the office is a, a really playing on their minds and yes. it, making them depressed. So these companies are, who are even talking about having everybody work from home even going forward, that may, probably doesn't make a lot of sense for a vast majority of people. Yeah. Well, and it is really interesting because we're seeing such an interesting juxtaposition right now, exactly as you articulated, Mark. You know, we actually, one of the organizations that we work with have their headquarters in Manhattan, financial services organization. And just before the realities of COVID-19 hit, they were actually just about to ink a deal on a new major Manhattan offices. And they all of a sudden, you know, they stepped back from that and said, hey, wait a minute. You know, we actually see our people are being totally productive and they're all working from home. Maybe we don't need to spend all this money. 
But when you get into actually talking to employees, it's a real mixed bag. Some people are really finding that they're working too much. They're not able to have that separation or they're finding that they're not as effective or they're feeling isolated. And so I think that it's more important than ever for organizations and leaders particularly to really tap into their employees and find out how to be able to support them, not only now as we're still in a transition phase in many places, but also, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that the answer is going to be everybody's going to be able to work from home because we are seeing that it's challenging. It's challenging to have the kind of teamwork and collaboration. So a real mix, I think, is really what we're going to see in the new normal. There will be more working from home, absolutely. But I think that we're still going to need to be able to find times to meet in person when it's safe to do so and keeping social distancing. I think the option of working from home is a great option, especially when you're raising kids and you want to be home. Uh, for your kids. I, back in 96, I ran a company where we did allow uh, people to work from home and we saw a 25% increase in, in the work getting done. And that worked for those people, but there's a lot of people, the isolation is overwhelming for them. And I, and I hear it when I talk to people. Well, absolutely. And I think the other thing, and it's so interesting that here we are on, on Zoom, is that there is the realities of Zoom fatigue. And many of you may have already experienced it, but we know from a neurological perspective, one of the things that's challenging for us is we as human beings, we sense other people and we sense them based on actually being in physical proximity. It's something that we, you know, from our ancestors and tribal days, we're really good at doing. And so when we're online, we don't necessarily have all of those those, those cues that aren't even in necessarily in, our, in the front of our awareness. But so we actually work even harder, which can be exhausting to try to say, you know, are you guys, is this all working for you? Is this, am I engaging? Am I saying the right things? And so from a neurological perspective, being on video all the time is exhausting. And it's especially for leaders. How do I really check in with my team? You know, not everybody right now has their cameras on. How do I know that this is all resonating with you? And these are the kinds of challenges that we're really working with leaders is one, we know virtual teaming is here to stay, but how to be able to make the best of it because there are actually advantages of being virtual. And at the same time, time, how to be able to, as we transition back to what that new normal is, how do we make sure we're accounting for opportunities to be able to collaborate in ways that really being in person really enable us to do in different ways? So just one more comment, and we're going to go to more questions related to the book. I have an English bulldog. I've had her for six years. She's great company. Uh, she's sleeping right now. We hope she'll sleep through the rest of this show. But so many um, people have been adopting dogs that there are now thousand person waiting lists. So it shows the isolation is really getting to people. Yes. Uh, my first question to you related to the book is what is mindfulness? Yeah, so the simple way, there's many definitions of mindfulness, but we like to keep things simple. And the most simple definition of mindfulness is the ability to be here now. And to go into that a little bit more detail, it's the ability to be able to be focused on the task at hand, but at the same time to be able to be aware of what's going on around you and aware of your priorities so that you make sure that you're focused on the right things. And that's as simple as it gets. So what leaders and or organizations have you found that use this effectively and, have, and they have gotten great results from it? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that. And as I said, we've been working for over a decade with many amazing organizations. You know, one of them, I can just mention, I mentioned earlier that we work with IKEA globally and they use this mindfulness practices to be able to help um, right from the CEO uh, all the way down to frontline employees to help people to be more present, more calm, more clear-minded. So whether, you know, you're at the C-suite level having to make big strategic decisions to be able to balance priorities or whether you're a forklift driver and you have to make sure that you're paying attention so that you're safe and you're keeping other people safe. These are the kinds of tools. And the cool thing I think about mindfulness is that it's a trainable skill. We all know, I mean, you, most of you listening to this and on this call, I'm sure you're probably pretty successful. And to part of being successful means you're probably already pretty focused and aware. The cool thing about this is it's trainable. No matter how good we are, we can actually train ourselves to be able to be better at sustaining our focus and better at being able to open our awareness so that we can be, again, more of our best selves. And we see this in companies like IKEA, um, but it really has amazing results in many of the organizations that we work with. 
So you talk about three mental qualities that stand out as being a major part of a leader's foundation. What are they and why did you choose them? Yeah, so the first one is mindfulness, which we've already talked about. Um, and it was interesting, actually, the backstory of when we were writing the book in partnership with HBR is originally the book was just going to be on mindful leadership. And that was based on tons of research. And I'm happy any of you who are interested, I'm happy to share with you the research benefit of mindfulness, but it has a ton of amazing things for us as individuals in terms of our own individual health, our ability to get better sleep, our immune system, our blood pressure, all lots of things. But as leaders, the key thing for us is that leaders that are seen as being more present naturally are able to be seen as being more engaging, more focused, more effective leaders. And so there's a lot of things that are really beneficial for mindfulness. And that was really what we started out doing based on the research and based on our many years of experience. What was really interesting, though, as I mentioned, as part of the research, we really engaged with many C-suite leaders. And that was where the other two qualities really came forward. And the second quality that we identified that was critical for leaders today was what we call selflessness. And a simple definition of selflessness is the ability to not let our own natural egoistic tendencies get in the way of our ability to be effective as leaders. And I'll just unpack that just a little bit our own natural egoistic tendencies. What the research shows is that as we rise up in the ranks of leadership, our ego naturally grows. And for those of you who are listening, you can maybe reflect back that first promotion that you got. Maybe you walked into the office and you felt a little bit good about yourself because you just got that promotion. And you should feel good about yourself. You worked hard for it. But what happens, what's actually happening from a neurological perspective is you actually start to think, wow, I'm, I'm kind of important. And if you start to think you're too important, the research shows that you will not be an effective leader. And what the research, and again, happy to share the studies around this, is that as we rise up in the ranks of leadership, we are more likely to exhibit rude, unkind, selfish, all the way to unethical behavior. So the next time you get offered a promotion, it should come with a warning label on it, say, warning, this could make you a jerk. So the reason why we really focused on selflessness was to really help us make sure that we're aware of the downsides of, of power, the risks of power, to be able to help us manage it so that we can be a more effective leader. So that's selflessness. The third quality that we identified was compassion. And again, to be able to put a simple definition on it, we define compassion as the intention to be of benefit. And what's really important for that is this is not about being soft and flaky and nice and sweet, because for us as leaders, and especially I'm sure many of you have had to make really tough decisions over the past couple of months about your business, about your people. Some of you may have had to lay people off. So compassion is to be able to do hard things in a human way. And that is really critical. So we actually look at it in the framework of saying it's not just about being kind, but it's being kind, combining kindness and care, genuine care for your people, also being able to bring wisdom into it. So being able to do the right thing for your business, but do it in a way that actually is caring and kind for the people that are affected by it. So those are the three qualities, mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion. I think maybe that's why great athletes and people who graduate the top of their class often don't make good leaders. Um, because of that, because we saw this going on since high school, right? When somebody was the valedictorian, they got very, they're very cocky. Somebody who's the star quarterback and the better the games that they had, everybody kept feeding their ego and, exactly. and, and that was bad for them. Yeah, exactly. And it really is, you know, it's something that for all of us, and, and the other thing I think about ego, just to be able to go, just to go into that in a little more detail, is we often think of having a big ego as being arrogant, like a number of the examples that you, that you have shared, you know, I think I'm so great. But just to be very clear, and this is what we got into in the book, ego can also be fear-based. Ego can also be, I don't think I'm good enough. And I'm afraid of making a tough decision, or I'm afraid of, of being found out that I'm an imposter. We all know about the imposter syndrome. And so one of the key things that we looked at in the research and in our conversations with leaders is how to combine a healthy sense of self-confidence, because you need to be confident as a leader. You've got to be able to, to know that you, at the end of the day, you have to make the decision and you have to be able to be confident in it. But at the same time, to be able to keep your ego in check so that you're not a jerk. 
that's the that's right. yeah the key uh, thing. we had we had john chambers on uh, a few weeks ago who built cisco systems yeah. and everything you said is what he said he focused on throughout his whole career yeah is to make sure he checked his ego at the door he said there's always some ego slippage um, but the whole idea is if if you don't do that you really can't build a successful organization for the long term. You might have some short-term success, but definitely not long-term success. Well, and I love that you say that. We interviewed John for the book, and, oh, okay. uh, and Cisco, Cisco is one of our global clients. So oh, absolutely, okay. completely agree. And it really, it really is amazing in terms of, and I think that's one of the things that we look at with these qualities of mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion. We can apply them to ourselves as individual leaders, but the power is really to look at it from a team and then from a cultural perspective. And, and leaders like John and other leaders that we spoke to not only looked at it in terms of how they behave themselves, but how to actually integrate these ideas of being more other-oriented, being more compassionate, and building that in. And, and John, I'm, I'm sure shared with you and, and shared with us many great stories of the length that he would go to to say, we're all in this together and we really need to have each other's back and be able to support each other if we're all gonna be able to make this organization successful. Uh, that's exactly the words he used. <laughs> so you've trained him quite well. Um, what, what is the profile of today's worker who works in jobs that require a college degree and what are their expectations of employers forgetting about the, the pandemic uh, from that equation? Yeah, I love that question. And that was really one of the things that we saw. The reason why it's more difficult to be a leader today, there's a lot of different reasons. You could look at globalization. You could look at different factors in terms of all the different things that you guys probably know. But your question really speaks to one of the biggest changes that we saw is the expectations of the workforce and specifically the younger workforce have changed. It used to be, and I may be you know, giving away my age here, but it used to be when I started out, that I was really happy to have a job. I was actually with Deloitte Consulting for many years and I was like thrilled to be able to go in on a Sunday and have five minutes with a partner. That was like precious. I felt good about that. And what we've seen now is that although, you know, this next generation of, of employees and our future leaders, they're definitely willing to work hard, but they're looking for a different deal in terms of the organization and also with the leaders is they want to feel valued. They want to feel a sense of purpose. They want to have meaning in their job, regardless of what their job is, but they want to have a sense of meaning. And this is radically different than what we were all taught in school, many of us, in terms of what we learn in a standard uh, management business education, is that it's a much different game to be able to, how do you help your people? And the other thing that we did in our, saw in our research is this, this word happiness came up, is that employees today are actually looking to create the conditions where they feel happy at work. And for us as leaders, I mean, I mean, I'm working on my own happiness. How do I, how do I create the conditions for my people to be happy, especially when it's such a flaky, fluffy, difficult to define term. But that was really what we saw as one of the game changers in terms of the expectation of the workforce today. And just to be able to put some statistics on it and maybe you know that is pre-COVID, what we found is that global engagement scores are just continuing to go down and down and down. Um, Pre-COVID, we knew that you know, only 13% of the global workforce is engaged, 24% actively disengaged, which means actively working against your, the best interests of your organization. And for that as leaders, I mean, that is, is, is really challenging and, and really difficult to be able to help us achieve the business outcomes we need. So what strategies can be used? Oh, this is one of the questions that popped up on our chat here. What strategies can be used to engage millennials? And, and you're right. I mean, I, I have uh, uh, my daughter is 29, her husband's 33. And that's one of the things that they really focus on. And I hear even when I was teaching at colleges, uh, I want to be happy. I don't want to see like our generation that you go in there and some people took jobs because, hey, I need to support a family or whatever. They're saying, yeah, I know I need to do that, but I want it to be more than that. I don't just, it's not all about the money at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think that what that really speaks to and what we looked at a lot, and this is also something that we've always been focused on, is that there's a real difference between genuine happiness versus pleasure or fleeting happiness. 
And specifically, we often think that, and we have a fantastic illusion, and I'm going to put all of us in this category because all of us experience this, that we have a fantastic illusion as human beings that, you know, if I just get that next job, or maybe if I get that bigger house, or maybe if it's simple, you know, if I just get that, that piece of chocolate cake or whatever it is, that somehow that will make me happy. And that's actually, again, from a neurological perspective, our brain is wired that way to seek instant gratification because that was actually foundational to our survival when we were in our tribal days. But it's an illusion because for those of you who have had that piece of cake and know that didn't really make me happy or got that job and realized you're still the same you that you were before, it's fleeting. And I think that that's the key thing that what we want to be able to understand is the difference between fleeting happiness. By the way, nothing wrong with enjoying the new car or the new job, nothing wrong with that at all. But just recognizing that that doesn't equate to lasting happiness. What truly equates to lasting happiness is a much deeper thing. It is around feeling a sense of purpose, feeling a sense that what I do matters, feeling valued, feeling like you're a part of something. Those are things, feeling connected, those are things that really are much more important to us in terms of our ability to feel genuinely happy. And so that's really what we as leaders need to start to turn our attention to is how can, how can we ourselves make sure that we're looking at what we feel genuinely drives us in terms of bringing more meaning and purpose into our leadership, but also to be able to support our people, feel that sense of connection, feel like what they do matters, even if it's cleaning the floor at night, but that matters. That's really important to be able to make sure that we're all safe. And we've seen that actually right now with the coronavirus is how important those people that we maybe never noticed before, they matter, they're critically important. And I think for us is to be able to make sure as leaders, we really recognize the value of every single person in our organization and how much they contribute and make sure we make that clear. So looking at how we can create genuine happiness which actually is, is not that difficult because, I mean, if you have someone in their, your organization and they don't add value, they shouldn't be there. So if they're in your organization, they add value, let them know. I, I'm 59 and I think we're the biggest, uh, and I'm freely admit that, uh, I think the biggest change for all of us, especially of my generation, is that before you worked in your hometown. And so there weren't many choices. And then as the internet came into being, now we have so many choices and kids have so many choices that I have friends who run companies and move to a different country or yes. move to a, to a different city every year or every couple of years. And so they're not tied down to that. So now this goes to what skills are CEOs expected to have and develop over the course of the you know, next 10, 5, 10, 20 years in order to keep people wanting to work for them and work for their organizations to help them grow. So what's the skill set they're going to need? Yeah, well, I just really want to echo that's one of the other challenges or the, the other things that we really saw is that in the war for talent, talent wins. Like when I can work from my living room for any company in the world, you know, it's pretty like it's pretty competitive in terms of if I have the right skills now all of a sudden the market, as you say, has drastically changed. So people that are really skilled and really good at what they do, because they can now work anywhere for anyone, it is much more important for us to be able to make sure that we can recruit and retain the best top talent. So I think in terms of how to do that, it really ties a number of things together, which we've been talking about. One, it is really around how to be able to engage people in a virtual environment, because we know that that is going to be the reality going forward. So how to make people feel connected and Microsoft, another one of our, of our companies, we actually did a lot of work with, with Satya and, uh, and with Catherine, their CHRO, in terms of how to be able to create a sense of engagement, even across like hundreds of thousands of employees around the world. And they look and you can actually, there's an article, and again, happy to send you a link, an article on HBR that we wrote in partnership with Kathleen. Hogan and, and really looking at how to create a sense of community and engagement in a global organization. And there's a lot of things that you can do and a lot of it is around being able to show up as human beings. Um, that is one thing that's critically important for us as leaders and how to be able to connect with people on a human way. And there's some really simple and easy ways to do that. You know, checking in, it's really interesting. You as a leader, you know, you may think, oh, geez, do I have to check in with every single person in the room, for example, to make them feel more connected, to be able to help them feel a part of this organization. 
And the truth is that actually just showing, even connecting with one person, there's a bystander benefit that it shows that you're really interested and you care about people. And it's actually that one interaction when seen by others actually magnifies and grows. So I think, you know, you've got all the, in terms of how to retain top talent, you know, you've got to look at all the standard things, the outer things around compensation and be competitive and what kind of benefits, all those things are nice to have. But in terms of being able to create real meaningful connections, especially in a virtual team environment, virtual organization, those are things that are around being able to be present, really paying attention to other people and really working hard to create a sense of connection, community and togetherness. So this leads me into, uh, you write about people-centered cultures. This is something we've been hearing about for a number of years. Do you think leaders really make this a priority or will that be put on a back burner because the, uh, of the economic crisis? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And it's certainly something that we've been talking to many organizations about. I mean, Marriott is another one of uh, the organizations that we've worked with for years. And of course, they're going through just massive, massive economic challenges. And I think that it's hard. Um, one of the things getting back to when I talked about the definition of wise compassion is that sometimes we do need to make tough decisions from a financial perspective. Otherwise, we're not going to be in business going forward. And those you could say on the outside, you could look at those and say, oh, you know, you said you were a people centric organization and yet you're laying all these people off. How is that kind? Um, but I think for us, what we know is, you know, if you don't lay those people off, you're not going to be in business tomorrow. So I think for us, what we really see is that, is that everybody's watching leaders today. You guys have all heard stories about companies that have not done kind things during this period. And those companies will have a really tough time employing people going forward. And we've also seen some amazing shining examples of organizations that have really stepped up and, you know, like Target that's offered actually to pay people, you know, increase people's salaries and increase people's benefits and really taking care of their employees. So I think that it's hard. And I think that this idea of people-centric cultures, I think that it is going to be the organizations that are going to thrive and be successful through this challenge are going to be the ones that take care of our, their employees. And I think to actually bring that around, I think that we're going to see a lot of people that are really looking at their organizations and saying, you know, wow, you didn't really take care of me when I needed you most. And that maybe I'll stay because, you know, unemployment's so high and I don't have any other choices. But the sooner, the sooner I can get out and find another organization that I know is going to be more there for me in the long run, I think that that's what we're finding. So people-centric cultures, I think, is here today to stay. And I think it's even going to be more important going forward. I think you're right in the sense of that to keep quality people, you have to treat them right. Yeah. If you want to keep the people who are, are just glad to have a job and not going to put that kind of effort in and show that type of loyalty, then uh, that's going to be the problem that you've set up for yourself uh, by not being focused on that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned the book uh, that 72% of leaders think they're inspiring, but the reality is 82% of employees find them uninspiring. Are today's leaders living in a fantasy world or are they the result of parents giving them, uh, uh, giving everyone a trophy for participating? <laughs> well, I love that question, Mark. And, and I can't say the, the causation of the, the, the trophy aspect, but I can say that that was really what we found was that many of us as leaders really do think that, oh, you know, I'm, I may not be the best leader, but, you know, my people are engaged and, and I'm doing a good job. And the research really shows that that is absolutely not the case. And, you know, just another interesting study to be able to put some statistics on it. One of the research studies uh, that we found both a little bit depressing, um, but instructive in this was that 65% of employees would forego a pay raise to see their leader fired. That is really telling. And that is really a bad. And I, just by the way, I, I checked. None of the employees were part of any of your organizations. I checked. Mark and I were very sure about that in advance. Um, but I think that it really says that right now there are a lot of employees that are only half there. They're only half in because they're really not that committed. And I think that what it also speaks to, and I think maybe that's another area to explore, is why is that? And what we found, and this really goes into this aspect of why mindfulness is so important, is what we found is that so many of us as leaders are busy, are distracted, 
We're not paying attention. And specifically, what we're not paying attention to is we're not paying attention to our people. And our people are trying to send us signals that they're not fully engaged. That's what the engagement scores show or the research that Mark that you mentioned are the 65%. But we as leaders, we're back to back meetings all day. We're not getting enough sleep at night. And we're just not taking care of ourselves and we're not taking care of our people. And it's showing up in the engagement scores. And so I think that's the other thing that what we really found was this idea of, of mindfulness, of being here now, of being present, is you know, you know, how many of you really take the time to check in with your people and really check in and stick around for the answer and not make it just something that you were told to do in a webinar and really take the opportunity to make your people feel seen, feel heard, feel valued, and really create that connection so that they can be more engaged. And it's tough because we're all very busy and very distracted. How can you make that trickle down to the managers below that they do that? And by the way, everything you say actually happens in a personal relationship, right? Like if you're married and you have kids, you know, you've got to be engaged. You got to shut the, la the laptop off, actually listen to them, and you got to be authentic. And there's, it adds even more stress that you've got all this other pressure on you as a manager or a leader in an organization. Now you got to think about everybody's feelings and yeah. how, how they're going to feel. Well, and I would say it's not necessarily having to think about everybody's feelings. There's some really simple tricks that you can do. I mean, one of the things that we know, and again, research backs this up and it's in the book, but I'm also happy if anybody wants to follow up with me directly, you're welcome to. One of the things we know, it's so simple, but it's so powerful. Every leader should know this, is that the mere presence of a cell phone, even if it's not beeping, buzzing, or vibrating, the mere presence of a cell phone detracts from our ability to feel a connection with another human being. And the reason is because just the mere present, if it's on the desk, there's this sense that even though you're not texting or talking to anybody, there could be something or someone that's more important than I am right here, right now. So again, like, a, and this is so simple, and this is again, back to why the mind of the leader, but also the mind of the people that you're leading is so important, is, you know, putting away the cell phone. You know, if you are face-to-face, -face, taking away any of the technology, because what it sends a simple signal without having to say anything, it sends a signal to say, I am here, you are important, and I want to listen to you. And I think that again, like, you know, so it doesn't have to be that complicated sometimes. My girlfriend tells me this all the time. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a work in progress. Uh, a, a psychologist in your book essentially said the more powerful a person becomes, the more they believe their own bullshit and the less respectful they are. And you talked about this a uh, little earlier. How can, letter, how can leaders uh, better control their bad impulses? I mean, I think that's a hard job. It's a really hard job. And I think that first of all, and, and this may be where you're going, Mark, but, but it really does take, first of all, it takes some humility, right? Like you're not going to be able to help someone understand their bad, in, their bad impulses if they're not open to change, right? So the, the, you know, how to change a light bulb, the psychologist's answer is only if it really wants to change. And that's really true <laughs> in terms of leaders. And I think that, so first of all, so for us as leaders, we just have to recognize, I don't care how good you are as a leader, you have opportunities to grow and opportunities to be better. And in order for us to be able to really help ourselves to develop and overcome some of our natural tendencies, or even things that worked well five years ago, but don't work so well with a new type of workforce that we've talked about, is we need to have some humility. And the key thing about humility is we have to be able to be open to feedback. And one of the things that we know is for us as leaders is oftentimes when we ask for feedback, and this was really the other thing that's so frustrating for leaders, Mark, when you mentioned the 72% think they're doing a good job. Some of them even said, but I ask my people and they always tell me, oh, Jacqueline, you're a great leader. Well, people don't want to tell you the truth <laughs> because maybe you know they don't feel safe. Like, so I think that for us as leaders, we need to create a, a sense of safety, of psychological safety, so that people will actually tell us, you know what, Jacqueline, you don't, you don't, you're great in many ways, fantastic, but you don't do this very well. And I need to, as the leader, be the one to initiate that, be able to open myself up. I need to find people in the organization that are really going to tell me the truth. And that for us as leaders is critically important, but it's foundational for us to be able to develop and really understand what's really going on with our people and how we can really be of best service. I can tell you from teaching college, at the end of the semester when the students give you their evaluation, 
And even when you're asking throughout the whole semester and right. saying to him, please let me know how I can make this experience better. You always have two or three folks who are not happy and that drives you crazy. Like all the happy things you got from all the others gets wiped out just by the two or three because you keep wondering what could you have done better with them that they would trust you enough to tell you those things. I think there's always a certain percentage of those people that just don't do it no matter what you're trying to do. Exactly. Uh, how, how can subordinates and employees and boards hold leaders more accountable? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that uh, one of the things with a lot of the organizations that we work with, I mean, they really look at, at leadership being leaders at all levels, right? How do, how do we really create a culture where anyone can call out, and this is certainly in our current climate where we're talking so much about diversity and inclusion and people feeling comfortable speaking out against things that they think are offensive or wrong or unjust. And I mean, that is, it's, it's, if you don't have that embedded in your culture, it is something that really takes a while to be able to create. And, and that's, I think, through, you know, that's, that's, that's a culture change process. And we're working with many organizations at how to be able to encourage and inspire um, the leaders to create the conditions of psychological safety to be able to support people at basically telling them, no, or, and it could be telling them what they're doing wrong, but it also could be saying, hey, I got a great idea on how to do things better. Um, one of the great stories that I love about this, and again, many of you may have heard the story because Ray tells it many times, but Ray Dalio, there's a great story um, about uh, an experience that he had where he was at a meeting and he really did a poor job and uh, he'd rushed in and there's a whole backstory to it. Again, happy to share the story with you because I think it's quite inspiring about what we're talking about. And because, you know, they have such a culture, we're really looking at radical candor and being able to have anybody can evaluate the most junior person at the meeting sent him a message and said, Ray, I just want to give you feedback. I believe you got a D minus on that meeting. And he went through and listed all the things. And what, what Ray did, and this is really about how, what leader signals, what messages we said is, you know, Ray first was a little bit, oh, well, I didn't think it was that bad. He got feedback from everybody else in the, in the meeting, asked them to rate him. They all agreed with a D minus rating. <laughs> and wow. so he published that he published that email to the entire organization to basically say nobody should be immune from feedback and celebrated that opportunity to say this is exactly the kind of culture that we want to have where everybody is held accountable. And it doesn't mean, you know, you're, 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 you're a bad person because you had a bad day or a bad meeting, but it's a way for us to say giving each other feedback and supporting each other to be able to make sure that we're of best service to ourselves and each other and the organization is actually part of our DNA. Uh, I enjoyed his book, Principal. Yes. And I wonder what they're saying now that since he's gone through, what, six CEOs in six years, how they're evaluating <laughs> his ability to transition and what he is, when he's looking at himself, because he hasn't been good at it. You can understand one, maybe two, but six, yes. a lot of people. Well, and I think that's the other thing that I, I really want to say, and, and this would be, you know, in all of the interviews that we did was every leader that we met with said, please, you know, don't put me on a pedestal. Don't say, you know, I'm perfect, because as soon as you say someone's perfect, you know, you're going to be able to say, well, what about this? You know, like Arnie Sorensen, you know, is again, you know, he's a good friend of ours and, you know, CEO of Marriott and a great guy, by the way, yeah. and has just recently been, been slammed for, you know, how Marriott dealt with the, the, with the current crisis. Um, and one of the things that all of the leaders said, and I think this ties to humility, is, you know, it's, it's really important to not hold ourselves up to standards of being perfect, but it really comes back to what are our intentions? What kind of human being do we want to be? You know, am I a leader because I want to control people and feel great about myself and feel like I'm the king of the castle? Or am I a leader because I fundamentally want to be of service and I believe in the mission of this organization? I, and I believe that part of my legacy is to be able to help others to be able to realize their ability to be of best service to this organization and grow and develop as professionals. So I think that for us, we really always come back to intentions and if your intentions are good, sometimes your actions may or may not serve them as interest, but always comes back to intentions. Well, if they want humbleness, they should have a Jewish mother and then they wouldn't have to worry about that. That will keep them in line. Um, <laughs> what's the process you teach to make leaders more mindful? 
Yeah, so there's uh, three different aspects of being able to help people be more mindful. The first one is to really understand how distracted we actually are, because most of us, like maybe when I said to you, you know, mindfulness is about being able to be here now. And most of you probably thought, well, you know, I am here now. What is that supposed to mean? And the science around it tells a different story. What we know from a research perspective, and if we're honest with ourselves, is we are incredibly distractible beings. And in fact, what the science shows is that we are distracted half of our waking hours. And basically what that means is all of you may be here listening, hopefully to our fun conversation, but at some point you've been distracted, you know, thinking about what you're going to do next, or, you know, did I remember to do the thing that I needed to do? And even if you're going in and out, you're still distracted. And so the first thing about helping people recognize the value of mindfulness is to recognize that we are distracted beings. And just so you know, the reason why we're distracted beings is because that was fundamental to our survival. If we were able to be so focused, like the guy or the gal that could focus on the fire, they are not our distant ancestors. Our distant ancestors in tribal times were the ones that were distracted. You know, a rustle in the bushes could be something dangerous, or look, that could be a wheel. Those are all the qualities of a distracted mind that were foundational for our survival. But you put that in our day-to-day work context, and it can make us not be present with our people and not be effective on our tasks. So that's the first thing. You know, it's like in any good 12-step program, you know, first thing is understanding the problem. The second thing is the cool thing is, as I said already, is that it's a trainable skill. We can actually train ourselves to be able to be more calm, more clear, more focused. And so that's the second thing is actually going into training the mind. And that is simple tools and techniques. And we have an app uh, that, again, happy to share with you, free free app, by the way. Um, But to be able to, to train ourselves and what the research shows is 10 minutes of daily training can actually rewire the structure and function of our brain to be able to help us overcome the distracted mind to be able to be more here now. So that's the second thing. The third thing that we look at is make it practical. Okay, so what does this actually mean when I show up in a meeting? How can, what is being mindful? What's the practical application? And so for that, we look at things like showing up in a meeting and recognizing that, you know, if people are distracted, we're not going to be able to be effective. So how can I help everybody to be more focused? You know, turning off devices, unless you're on a Zoom room, turning off other devices, keeping the Zoom on, but even things like turning on the video. That's a really important way to be able to help people pay more attention to each other because we have those visual cues. But really looking at how to make it practical in day-to-day work life. So even simple things like turning off notifications because most of the time they're just a distraction fest and other things. So those are the three things is understanding the nature of the problem, training the mind to be able to help overcome it, and thirdly, making it super practical so I can actually walk away and do something in my next meeting that's going to be helpful for me to be able to be more mindful as a leader. I feel like I'm a caveman because I'm still at the first level there. <laughs> Uh, I am sure that's not true, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) How important is humility? Because Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, and even some could say uh, the leader of our country don't display this. So how important is truly being a successful leader, having humility? Yeah, and I want to say that, uh, you know, in fairness to the research that we did, although we, we tried to be very comprehensive, you know, a lot of the leaders, when I said that what we, we heard a lot from leaders, how important humility is, and there could have been a selection bias. I mean, the people that, you know, they, they might have known who we were and, you know, Donald Trump didn't answer our call for an interview, just so you know. So there could be a selection bias in the criteria. Um, but what the research shows to be able to look at it from a scientific perspective is the research shows that, you know, you can be successful being a jerk as a leader. There's no question about it. We can have lots of examples and some of them that you mentioned can be extremely successful and not be humble. What we found, though, is that it's not long term sustainable. And you can actually look at this potentially in terms of the, you know, the number of transitions in the White House is you're not necessarily going to be able to sustain and retain good top talent because after a while, people will work with a leader who may be, you know, really, really, you know, brilliant, like you know, maybe Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, yeah. but they will, because they, they, they know fundamentally, they feel neurologically that you're all about you, you're not about me, because they can feel it, even if they, it's not articulated. They will, the first chance they get, they will learn everything, they will take advantage of it. But if they can, 
leave. And if they can screw you, they will. And that's what the research shows. And I think intuitively that also just makes sense to us. So I mean, humility is about long-term sustainability. What's the name of the free app uh, that you're referencing? So if you go to potential project backslash app, or if you go to our website, www.potentialproject.com and you look for apps, you can find it. So it's a potential project app and it's got guided trainings and additional resources to be able to support you in terms of being more mindful, more selfless and more compassionate. Uh, why do some leaders worry that selflessness will make them look weak? Yes, I love that question. And uh, I don't know if we have time to get into it, but it was very interesting, especially when we looked at female leaders versus male leaders. So this was an interesting thing. Yeah, that came I want to hear that too. Yeah, so that was very interesting. Um, and I think that it's because there's a, there's a misunderstanding and that's why I really wanted to put that definition of selflessness up front. There's a misunderstanding that if I'm selfless, it means I'm a doormat. And honestly, there's no good things about being a doormat as a leader. So if being selfless means, oh, I'm just going to let everybody walk all over me. I'm just going to let people do what they want. You should not be a leader. That is not effective at all. So I think that's why what I really wanted to emphasize in terms of how we're defining selflessness it is really about making sure you have an other orientation, that you're not letting those natural egoistic tendencies that I talked about get in the way. And, and this, is, this is really, really, really critical. And, it's, and like I said, it's, it's hard um, because it's, it's natural for us to focus on myself, focus on myself in terms of things I think I'm great at that I might not be so great at, and also focus on myself in terms of my fears and weaknesses. So if, by the way, if I give you everybody's email, can you send out these studies and the apps? Because they're apps? all lined us. Yes. And I have to say, people have enjoyed you so much that you're the first person I've interviewed that no one has left. You know? <laughs> so that's fantastic. So that says a lot about, about what you have to say has real value uh, to people. Um, I noticed that, uh, is there a dural difference between men and women leaders? Yeah, and I know, actually, it's interesting, uh, Mark, you asked uh, one of the pre-questions you said you were going to ask me about was, you know, you did notice and, and we were very, we were, we did try very hard to get as many, as many as we could female leaders as male leaders. And it was challenging because quite honestly, if you look at the latest stats in terms of CEOs of major corporations, major five, Fortune 500, our actual research is actually quite indicative of the same percentages. We just don't see the same number of female female leaders. And uh, so that was challenging for us. But I think what we found is there was, there was a couple of really interesting differences. One of the things that we found, and uh, for those who women leaders, but I'm also going to say this is so relevant for all you male leaders that I'm sure want to make sure that all of the women in your lives and especially the women in your companies are successful, is that women do have a double blind from a neurological perspective. And specifically, if I show up as a super kind and compassionate leader, I can potentially be criticized as being too soft. And on the other hand, if I come and I'm really tough and I'm really business oriented, I've said, this is the thing we're gonna do, we're gonna move this forward. I can come across as being not nurturing enough. And I'm not saying that it's right. I'm just saying that is how we are primed to think of women. And it's, we're trying to, of course, change those images in society, but that is a neurological challenge for us. And the interesting thing is the research says, and again, probably many of you can relate to this, is that if a man walks in the room and says, oh, you know, guys, I, I just want to say how much I care all about you. And let's talk about our emotions. People will say, wow, you know, he's this amazing business leader and yet he's so kind. And it, it, if he walks in and says, hey, you know, we're going to get this job done. We're going to be really strategic and really focused. And they'll say, wow, he's so strong. He's so tough. We love him. So, and, and it's interesting because my co-author happens to be male and he and I have, have actually tested this with audiences. We do speaking engagements around the world. And a simple test that we did is, and both of us are, you know, both of us travel around the world. We're, you know, co-authors of the book. Um, very interesting. We, we both have families. We both have uh, twins with separate people. So we're very similar in a lot of ways. If he stands up in front of an audience and starts talking about his kids, he will get higher ratings. If I stand up in front of an audience and start talking about my kids, I will get lower ratings. And you can all figure out exactly what that's about. So it's not fair, it's challenging, 
For us as women leaders, we have to be able to recognize that there are biases and that we need to navigate them differently. But the key thing and my key message is, it's important for all of us because I see it that we're all in this together. So how can we ensure that all of us are aware of those biases and able to overcome them? And this of course, not just goes for gender issues, but of course it's also racial biases, which we all know are out there. It's how our brain works. We're not bad people for having biases. It's how the brain works. But if we can pause in the moment, which is again, a mindful strategy to be able to be more aware of our biases, to be able to help ourselves, to be able to overcome them, that's the best strategy forward. I have to say, when I do mention my daughters, uh, that gets me a lot of points. But when I mention my English bulldog, I totally win them over and get a lot of empathy from people. <laughs> Any insight into leadership and race-based unconscious bias, inclusion, and diversity? Yeah, you know, I, I think as I just said, I mean, right now, especially in, in this country where we're seeing you know, so many challenges, um, and, and I think it's, I, I personally believe it is, it's challenging, but it's also bringing issues that, of course, have been there for, 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 for a very long time to light. The reality is, uh, and this I think is really important for all of us as leaders to recognize, is that um, the reality is, is that we all have biases. And if you think that you're not biased, um, you're wrong. Um, you are. Um, I'll just give it my own personal story just to be able to put some, uh, some light onto it. I have always, I've grown up in a family, my sister's an engineer, my mother, you know, I came home when I was five years old from kindergarten and I said, I was, I had a, I had a scratch on my knee and was taken care of by the nurse. I said, mom, when I grow up, I want to be a nurse. My mom said, why don't you want to be a doctor? So that is the culture that I've grown up in is always to focus on myself as a female professional. I travel all the time. One time I got on a plane and all of a sudden the captain's voice came on and it was female and I could feel in my body that I did not feel as safe. And so I'm telling you, no matter how much you think that you've overcome your own biases, I guarantee you, you have not. So that's point number one. We are all, we are biased beings. Our brain does that to be able to keep us safe, it recognizes patterns, it goes based on history and all kinds of things. So the first thing I think is to be able to aware again that you have a problem because we all do. The second thing though, is that when we start talking about race and gender issues and diversity, the problem is, is that from an organizational context is two things happen. One, some, some people feel like you're blaming me and you're criticizing me and that doesn't create psychological safety. And another group just feels uncomfortable because they don't know necessarily what to do with it. And so studies actually shows that oftentimes bringing in diversity and inclusion training can actually create more distance between people because now people are uncomfortable. It's like, oh, I... I don't know if I can mention the color of your skin because now I be, may be seen as being racist, you know, and, and you know, so, so it's really, really important back to the qualities that when we work with organizations to look at bringing more diversity and inclusion, it's one, recognizing you have a problem because we all do, we're all in this together. The second thing is to be able to pause in the moment, which is really the mindfulness practice so that we can tune more in. We're not in reactivity mode. We can be more responsive. We can allow our nervous systems to calm down, which is critical. When our nervous systems, when we're, when we're uncomfortable, when we're stressed, which many of us are right now, we do not react in good ways. We go into flight or fight mode or freeze mode. None of that is positive from a diversity and inclusion perspective. So the other thing, calm our nervous systems down so we can actually have good conversations. And the third thing that we actually do, and this is, again, a trainable skill, is to bring more curiosity, bring more effective conversations, bring more opportunity for dialogue, less assumptions, more beginner's mind into our ability to be able to have effective conversations. Because the only way that we're going to address these issues is if we really, one, value ourselves as diverse beings and diverse organizations, which I hope you all do, but secondly, to be able to find ways to really feel a sense of togetherness and inclusion and be able to really have good conversations about the different challenges that we face in our organizations today. So I want to show everybody again the book, which I think is fantastic. And everybody, after hearing you, I'm sure they're going to race out to buy this book on Amazon. I have one, and, and with 30 seconds left, want to know, what do, what do you read? Uh, what, you know, what would you recommend people reading on these subjects outside of your book? 
Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, uh, there's so many, there's so many things that's such a, I'm, I'm an avid reader. So there's so many things that I love reading. I, I do, I, I do want to put a plug in for HBR because I, do. Uh, I love the Harvard them. Business Review. Yeah. <laughs> we love them. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that we really find that in terms of, you know, the magazine and then the articles and the posts and I've just found them, especially during this crisis, I think that we've been writing posts for them and, and many others, and they've made them all freely available, which I think is a fantastic thing. So I think that's number one. I think the other thing is, you know, from a leadership perspective, one of the things that at least I'll just say, I really geek out on the science and you may have got a sense of that, but the more that you can understand the science of your mind, the tricks that it plays, the, the way your default mind works, um, so a real, you know, neurological and brain-based, and we try to present that in very straightforward terms. So we actually go and we read all the research studies and then try to translate that into, you know, layman's terms that we can actually embrace and understand. Um, but I think, you know, like I think that those kind of books anyway are things that I would really recommend or, you know, things like The Power of Habit, which really gets into how we can not only understand our brain, but actually play little tricks to be able to help us change our habits and be more of the leader that we want to be. Well, the person following you next week is Michael Houlihan from Barefoot Winery. So he's got a lot to live up to now that they've heard you. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Please be safe. And uh, maybe with the next book you ever come out with, we'll have you back again. Well, we're, we're, we've already signed the contract, so I'll look forward to that, Mark. <laughs> and thank you all so much, everybody, for joining. And I'll be so pleased to connect and hear any feedback that you have for me and anything that I can do to support you in your leadership journey. So thank you so much. I'll send you everybody's email so you can get out information to them. Wonderful. Thank you so much, everyone. Enjoy your weekend. Take, take care. Bye-bye.